0: Welcome to Counterintelligence. This is Eric LeVay. Today's guest is climate journalist Emily Atkin. Forensic news thanks our Patreons Andre Dunka, Angela Jackson, Zacharias Ziskor Kaminsky, Sasha Millstone, Craig Pierce, Jim Rice, and Greg Schneider. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence. Emily Atkin, welcome to Counterintelligence.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Emily, thank you so much. And as I was just saying to you, I know this is a very big week in, uh, in your career. So I just want to thank you for taking a half hour out and, uh, you know, talking to us here at, uh, at Forensic News. Thank thank you so much for doing that.
1: Of course. I mean, I appreciate that you uh, wanted to
0: talk to me about it. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we've done, um, this is probably our 10th show and, you know, it's like, we have to do a show on climate science, obviously the you know most important issue of our time. So I, uh, i was thrilled that you had a, a little time to talk to us. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you first, as a, uh, a climate reporter, uh, I know you've you know worked for Newsweek, The New Republic, and now you're uh, out on your own with your new newsletter, Heated, which I can't wait to talk about. What I actually just kind of had a professional question: How do you how do you uh, fuse sort of climate science w- with journalism, if if, if you could?
1: Um, I mean, they're really easy topics to fuse together. I mean basically every time a new study comes out about what's happening to the climate, um, it's news. I mean, it's, it's journalism. I mean, this is, this is basically climate science represents information, um, about our potential future that we need to deal with, um, you know, as a society and that we need to decide what we want um, our politicians to do about. Um, and so, when a scientific study comes out say about sea level rise or about desertification or about, um, extreme weather that has implications for our entire political system. And, um, it's honestly, it, it, to me it's a super easy topic to, to report
0: on. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree. And I know, I like, I know on this show, I, I think one of the challenges with maybe with the climate science, obviously, you know, you, this is what you do, so you're an expert. But I think one of the things that's been a little bit of a crutch for the general public is just that, I mean, maybe the fundamentals are simple, but it's it's not like you can just sit down and watch two people uh, yelling at each other on CNN. I mean, you have to really have some kind of understanding of, of just of, of the topic. And uh, that's why I think it's so important that what you and other reporters do is tr- translating it from, you know, into a language that people can understand. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, it I will tell you, it took a long time, probably for the first um, full six months of my climate journalism career. I was just reading scientific studies and um, calling up the authors and trying to figure out what exactly they meant in layman's terms. Mm-hmm. And then um, because I started doing this in 2013, um and there was a lot of false balance coverage out there, which sort of just means that there was a lot of both sides. You know, maybe mm. climate change is real, maybe it's not. Then I would take the information in that in those studies, and I would call other scientists and I would call other experts and try and um, you know basically fact check it and fact check it against these claims that other people were saying that it you know that it was exaggerated or that it was a hoax and and stuff like that. And so yeah, I mean I, I would say that the first pretty much the first six months to a year of my career was just doing that until it became pretty clear to me just as a journalist trained to study, you know, what is objective fact and what is, what is misinformation um, that the vast, vast majority of the climate skeptic community was peddling lies and misinformation and trying to mislead with ulterior motives. So it's a, it's been a, It's been it's been a journey the
0: last (laughs) year. Yeah, I feel like the last two years have been a journey in other ways. If if you uh, know what I mean, it's been oh god, yeah. You know, and 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 that's so true. And the you know the the both sides thing. We could do a whole another show on that, but that's it's been so corrosive in so many ways. And it's just that whole thing has a fascinating history. Uh, You know, it's like the idea that like ninety nine percent are you know correct me if I'm wrong of the world's best scientists know that there's and have proved that there's climate change going on and that's negatively affecting us. And then there's like whatever, three other people that that's the same thing is just unbelievable to some people.
1: Uh, I mean, there's also like 10% of the population that believes the Holocaust didn't happen. mm. Um, and that's far more than the amount of climate scientists that think that climate change (laughs) isn't real. Um, and we don't give those people as much credit as we do, uh, to climate deniers in our society. So that's just,
0: yeah. that's just something uh, to think about. I wonder what the crossover is there, the, uh, the Venn diagram or if that's the right terminology, but maybe another,
1: well, I mean, some people are just, some people just, you know, like conspiracy theory and sometimes conspiracies are real. Um, it's just that this one isn't.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so. right. It's, it's very real. And, uh, uh, you know, I look at it, uh, my role on this show, too, in a similar way. You know, some a lot of the national security stuff we do is, uh, you know, as you know, not everyone has time. Everyone's busy to uh, even sometimes sit down and read. So I look at my role as, as similar just to explain things to people who maybe had uh, just put it a little more into, um, I don't know, uh, if they don't have much as much time, they can listen to me in the car or whatever and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, learn something. Uh, speaking of which, I wanted to ask you, so... So last night, um, actually, you know, at first, could we get a status update on just the general global climate change right now? And just just in your own words, uh, where are we as of right today and our efforts to combat it?
1: Uh, um, well, we're not doing fantastic. I mean, <laughs> okay. listen, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's this... Um, body of over a thousand climate scientists uh, from all over the world who come together and basically assess the uh, body of research that exists throughout the world on climate change and its impacts. You know, they put out this report this year that said that um, what we really want to do uh, is limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial Levels so Mm. before the Industrial Revolution, we want to prevent the world from warming uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius above that, right? Mm. Because that's the point at which irreversible catastrophic impacts start to occur. The sea level starts rising a lot. Mm. Um, You know, 70 to 90 percent of all coral reefs start to start dying. Mm. Um, You know, it becomes much harder to grow food extreme weather gets much much worse more than what we're seeing now and right now um we're at this point where we've already warmed mm-hmm. about one degree celsius um if we do nothing uh if we just keep on the current track that we're on now the entire world we'll reach the 1.5 degree mark by about 2035 2040. Mm. um and what we really don't want is to reach two degrees Celsius. Um, that is just everything I just talked about with 1.5 degrees just gets much, much worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in our current trajectory, we're there, you know, by about 2060, 2070. Uh, by 20, by the end of the century, you know, we're anywhere from three to four degrees Celsius of warming, which is just uh, unthinkable. Um, unthinkable catastrophe all over the world. So um, what we need to do with the IPCC tells us this large body of science is that we need to rapidly decarbonize. So everything that produces carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas emissions um, on like a huge level, you know, um, our fossil fuel industry, our agricultural industry, um, we need our, you know, just basic industries, cement making um buildings, concrete, all that we need to find ways to to produce energy to make food and to build buildings in ways that don't emit greenhouse gases um, And we need to basically wipe out 50% of all of our greenhouse gas emissions by um, by 2030. So that's what hap- that's when you hear people say we have 11 years to, do something, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about cutting emissions in half by 2030 to make sure we're still able to get to that 1.5 degree mark. Um, And so right now we're not super on that trajectory, at least in the United States. Uh, Other countries are doing better, but not all of them. Um, And that's why, you know, the next election is is so important, because the next president here will really decide um, whether or not we hit that target.
0: Because that's a exactly uh, because that's a, this is a global effort. Although is the United States the most important in terms of reaching this goal? Are we the are we the the leader? Uh,
1: I would argue that we are. Mm. Um, there are some people that would argue that China is um, because China right now emits the most carbon per year, um, but the United States has emitted the most carbon dioxide historically. Like so, since its existence. We as a country have emitted, um, we have put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than any other country. We've, mm. we've emitted far, far more than China on a historical basis. And we, uh, we really benefited from that. It's because of our carbon emissions that we now have such a rich, prosperous society. Um, and we are still uh, the number two carbon emitter uh, behind China or at least number three, I'll have to, I would have to check that, but you know, we're still, we're still really, really high up there. Um, and we represent, um, we represent 15% of the entire world's carbon emissions. So not only do we have a big role to play in reducing emissions, we also have a big leadership role because if we don't reduce, uh, carbon emissions, then it's really hard to make the moral case to other countries that they should do it too, when we're basically saying to them, you know, we got all the benefits of carbon emissions, but we're not going to reduce ours until you reduce yours while you're still trying to get the benefits of them. Um, So I think the leadership role is really important, showing other countries how, how you can rapidly reduce your emissions and still remain on an economic growth trajectory trajectory i think that's really the responsibility of the united states
0: i love how we're number one and also like the worst things like that just kind of that hit my funny bone a little bit like you know that's you know it's a very united states thing to be brag about being number one and including uh you know the worst polluter but
1: yeah we're uh, the worst polluter i think we're like what we're like the fattest or something that's that's the one we always that's the one that people normally say
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's it, and it's interesting because I absolutely never thought about that. You're, right. I mean, you're right. The what made us a global superpower was part of this, like you said, carbon emissions. I, I never thought about it like that. We we wouldn't be who we were without the. I guess was that from the industrial age.
1: Uh, yeah, from the industrial revolution. I mean, that's a, you know, how did we power our factories? How did we start uh you know the automobile manufacturing? industry is an internal combustion engine right um we mined uh coal and we drilled for oil and we made a lot of money burning fossil fuels we we bowled over trees to make way for like vast vast areas of cropland and an other industry, right mm-hmm. And all of that industry is fossil fuel powered and we got rich as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know climate scientists started warning us that if, that by doing this we were at, we were potentially altering the Earth's atmosphere and the livability of the planet and the people who were making a bunch of money mm-hmm. um, saw that. Thought as a risk and decided instead of doing something about it that they would do everything they could to prevent that information from mm. from being seen as credible, um, so that they could continue getting rich. Um, and so now we're sort of at a point where the misinformation campaign that they've waged in order to get ri- to get rich has been fully exposed, uh, but we're still kind of dealing with it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and across the world, so that 's another big problem we have to deal with before we are able to take action and um find other ways to get rich because i mean it's pretty clear that there are other ways to get rich that don't involve um screwing the climate
0: yeah i mean we we owe we owe a debt uh well i mean mildly to the world if if this is what put us in number one we need to make things right. Uh, and it, I just, you know, it, it is sobering. It's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you this is your your specialty. Uh, do you ever have to just decompress? After, I mean, I'm sure you do after being in, in this stuff all day. It must be kind of, it's heavy. Uh,
1: yeah, it's heavy. But, I mean, one of the things that keeps me really motivated on it is just it's not – it's focusing in on the outrage and the anger of the fact that, you know, this is so bad because of the continued misinformation campaign on the part of greedy people, mm-hmm. um, and powerful people. And I have, you know, personally, I, I have hope every day because I, I have a great community of readers and, and people like on Twitter and who, who recognize that and want to do something about it. Also, I mean, I tend to be, you know, I'm able to compartmentalize things um, and it feels good to me to, you know, recognize what a problem is, give voice to that problem and do whatever I can to inform people about it. So even though it is really heavy, you know, at the end of the day, As long as I'm doing everything I can to do that, I I tend to feel pretty, pretty okay. Um, And then the other thing is that, I don't know, man, sometimes climate change is so ridiculously depressing (laughs) that it's almost funny. Um, (laughs) You know, it it helps to have a, if you are like me and you have a dark sense of humor, sometimes Mm -hmm. you just look at this stuff and you're like, (sighs) okay, all right, so that ice sheet's melting too? Cool.
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah
1: you're like, all right, well, we had a good run, and that's you know
0: yeah you, i'm the same way you're
1: I mean, you're not you're yeah. not useful as a as a depressed person right no. like no. you're just not useful so I, I i try not to i try not to um let it get to me too much because I want to be useful i i
0: i, besides, I have a comedy background, but also i just i've laughed every day since at least November ninth two thousand sixteen i i even laughed i I'm just like you. I laugh every day, no matter how serious it is, because you can't make this stuff up. Um,
1: well, you know, I got to tell you like a quick story. Sure. Um, you know, when Trump was inaugurated, it was uh, January 27th, right? 27th mm-hmm. of 2017. Mm-hmm. And um, my mentor, uh, who's an investigative journalist named Wayne Barrett, and he's actually the inspiration for the newsletter. Um, you know, his approach to Injustice was to be really freaking angry about it all the time. And he was one of the first journalists to investigate Donald Trump. He wrote an investigative biography of Trump uh, in the 80s called Trump, the deals and the downfall about his real estate career. And so Wayne became this like during the election, this expert on all things Donald Trump. I'm you know, exposing all this awful stuff that he was doing in the 80s. And, you know, he has this whole lifelong career going head to head with Trump, really just hated the guy, thought that he <laughs> was the most corrupt person in the world. And Wayne died on January 26th, 2017, the day before Trump was inaugurated, wow. like he just couldn't see it. Right. Wow. And I laughed when I heard it. Yeah. Because I was yeah. just like, you, you. <laughs> son of a bitch <laughs> you did it like <laughs> you, le-
0: you left me here you left me with this lunatic craziness uh, wow
1: yeah like how dare you
0: <laughs> that's very funny you know i actually i think it was yesterday uh i i'm pretty sure this was in his book uh i was doing a little research on a um convicted uh, narcotics trafficker named uh, Wexelbaum. i think it's wex or wexelman who was trump's helicopter pilot uh and um i'm not sure if you know that name but but Anyway, I'm pretty sure Mr. Barrett wrote about him, and he might have been the first one. Uh,
1: that sounds like Wayne. I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, he
1: found the he found these craziest characters and people who, you know, e- exposed all these web of connections between people. Um, and you know, that that type of stuff that he did is what I really want to try and do with climate change. Um, you know, in Wayne's later years, he. Uh, he wrote in a few columns that, you know, he always had research assistants, um, you know, young people helping him with his work. And he was like, you know, I try to teach them, but I also learn a lot from them too. And he often said that one thing he learned, you know, was the urgency of, of the climate crisis, which he called the climate crisis before before it was super mainstream. Um, so to try and take, you know, some of that dogged reporting and put it in, into climate change reporting is
0: something I'm going to at least try to do. Can't make any promises. You, never, you know how this stuff goes. I sure do. Uh, you know, so last night uh, there was a um, there was a massive CNN uh, town hall. I know you were tweeting about it on climate science, so I really just want to kind of get your thoughts on that. What did you think of the first, uh, you know, global or at least this, this big no, – no one's ever done this before. What did you think of it?
1: I mean, oh, my God, so many thoughts. <laughs> Uh <laughs> I, love it. I wrote um I wrote about them all in the first sort of pre-launch issue of my newsletter but I guess to sort of sum them up I-, I would say that for the most part I was pleasantly surprised by the quality of the questions um especially in the area of holding um the candidates accountable for decisions they'd made in the past or questionable positions they'd taken in the past with regard to climate change. You know, each candidate had, you know, at least one uncomfortable moment where they had to explain something um, to somebody who didn't think that what that their position was right. Um, You know, Joe Biden had to explain why the next day, uh, if he was so serious about the cr- climate crisis, why the next day was he having a fundraiser hosted by um, an executive of a liquefied natural gas company? Mm. And Biden was, Biden said he's not, he's not, he's not a fossil fuel executive. Like he doesn't do that. Mm. And then you know, Anderson Cooper clarified that he he indeed was, mm. and Biden you know had to say, had to say, um, oh well, I didn't know that. My staff told me that he wasn't, and then. You know, Anderson Cooper said, well, if he is, are you going to cancel it, the fundraiser? And Biden said, yes. Um, so wow. I'm not sure where that, that stands as of today. But, um, you know, just moments like that that are just so important to making climate change um, relevant to people. It's not just, you know, how are we going to die? It's what are you going to do to make sure we don't die? Because we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's up to you, you know, our political leaders to decide whether or not you're going to stand up to power or not. So I was really, su- I was really pleasantly surprised at that. I, I hated that it was seven hours long. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs>
1: I thought that was, I thought that was torture, honestly, yep. like who, how is that accessible to any American, especially, you know, the most vulnerable Americans who are going to be most impacted by climate change, you know? they have to work, they have kids, they might not have cable, like I, it, you couldn't even live stream it for free online anywhere. It was so difficult to find. So, you know, I I felt like there's still so much we need to do. Um so far we need to go, but it was definitely I mean, it was definitely the best climate journalism I've seen on CNN oh. ever. Wow. So I'll get that.
0: Um that's that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, I was going to say, so last on the, on the, the comedic tip, uh, (laughs) so I, 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 like you, like you were saying, I, you know, I was quite busy last night. I didn't realize it was going to be last night. So anyway, but I found out, I'm like, Oh, so I, I DVR'd it or I thought, uh, woke up all excited or no, after, after, um, I got home, after I got home from work, I was very excited. So I'm like, I pull it up and I'm not seeing anything. And long story short, I didn't realize it was seven hours, so I had recorded like 35 minutes of it.
1: Uh, Oh, my God. Yeah, because why would it be seven hours? What kind of torture demon would subject anyone, even me? I do climate change for a living. Like, why? No one wants that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I want to highlight something at this moment. I also want to say, um, Emily's newsletter is called Heated. It is... Is is this the first newsletter devoted to climate journalism? Is this the only one? Uh. Um, there definitely are other newsletters.
1: This is the only um, climate journalism newsletter on Substack, which is okay. a newsletter platform. Um, but you know, New York Times has their climate newsletter. A lot of publications have newsletters that send out sort of summations of their daily news every day. But um, I definitely, I definitely saw. A space lacking for accountab- like original accountability journalism, explained in like a human way every single day. So, uh, 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 you, uh, so
0: yes, yeah. um, I was going to say everyone needs to subscribe to Heated, and I'm going to tell you why. It goes back to the story. I was just I was just telling you. So I I completely I DVR the wrong thing. I miss it. I woke up this morning. You had a pre newsletter, like a, a preview of what we're going to be doing, and I learned something. This is why you guys have to subscribe to Heated. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. The reason there was a seven hour CNN town hall is because they were getting a because Tom Perez and the DNC will not allow the candidates to participate in one, so they basically just shirk the format. Do I have that correct?
1: Uh. Yeah, so um the DNC has been under pressure for a long time from activists to hold a climate change focused debate where all the candidates are on stage together debating climate change, so normal format, two hours talking about this one subject all that um the dnc refused 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 not only that um, but said that they would bar any candidate from participating in their official debates if they participated in an outside organization's climate change debate so the only thing that outlets like cnn mswc uh, can do if they want the candidates to talk about climate change is do this individual one by one town hall format because candidates are not allowed to appear on stage together to debate subjects per the dnc's rules so it's not cnn's fault that this is seven hours long it's the dnc's
0: fault i as a person who generally has uses words for a living i don't really have any words to describe that i'm i'm just sort of at a loss for words actually uh
1: um yeah, I mean it it's it's a complete failure on the mainstream Democratic party's part to recognize um the importance severity and complexity of this issue. One of the reasons that Tom Perez um said that he didn't that he wasn't going to allow a climate debate is because um if he allowed a single issue debate, then he would have to allow other single issue debates like debates on healthcare and, you know, uh, abortion and immigration and the economy and which is just such a flawed it's such a demonstration of a failed understanding of climate change because every single one of those issues was talked about in the cnn climate forum um you know literally every single one of those issues because climate change is not a single issue it is right. every single issue
0: and if I could, by the way, also that also sounds like awesome to me. Like I have no problem with a single debate on healthcare or immigration or like 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 he says it like it's that's a bad thing. Uh, I yeah, would look- I
1: know. It's, it's like why not? Let's just do it. Why can't we have our presidential candidates debate the things that are important to us?
0: <laughs> yeah, I you know I, I that yeah I I don't know what to say about the the party establishment there, but that is really. This is the most important issue because none of those other things are even possible if there's no planet. Uh,
1: you know, it's a, it's a reluctance to, on the DNC's part, I think, to challenge the status quo, right? that They don't want to do something that they've never done before. And um, Natasha Geiling wrote for TNR, uh, for the New Republic, she wrote something about this and she, and she basically said that, she said, you know, the the DNC's failure to allow the climate debate, you know, it reflects their their desire not to change the status quo. Mm-hmm. And if the but but if the DNC is that hesitant to change the status quo, then it doesn't bode well for its efforts to you know solve the climate mm-hmm. crisis because that's exactly what's going to be needed to do it. So um, you know, something in my in my opinion, something has to change with the DNC. Um, if the Democrats are going to be the party that, that actually we can depend on to solve climate change.
0: Yeah. Again, there seems to be this, uh, this is some sort of cognitive dissonance where we talk about the status quo. Well, uh, there is no D I'm, I'm like, again, I'm going back to basics. There is no DNC. If the planet is a raging hellstorm of a, a red ball, like there's no parties, there's no nothing. <laughs> there's no, well, it's just,
1: you know what though, I, I- in a way, that's not true because there's nobody that's going to be better protected from the worst effects of the climate crisis than the privileged, uh, you know, wow. dudes of the DNC, right? They'll be fine.
0: Wow. So They'll be
1: fine for 100 years, you know? So the rest of us that aren't so lucky.
0: I see. So even if things go that way, of course, with money, they'll still be able to live at least for, for a while, uh,
1: yeah I mean I, I don't I think that I think that humans will continue to live even if climate change gets really really bad even if at four degrees Celsius five degrees Celsius six degrees Celsius you know humans will find a way but but millions of people will die um and it won't be the Tom uh Tom Perez's of the world that die
0: yeah I'm, th- I'm thinking of uh I'm, I'm kind of picturing uh uh Tom uh per- is it Perez or Perez I don't know, Paris, is it Paris? Um, Well, either way, I'm kind of picturing him in some bunker talking about civility as uh, everyone else is just outside trying to, you know, in that voice. Uh,
1: Yeah, and and no, I don't know the pronunciation either. That's the problem with people like us who spend all day just reading and never (laughs) talking. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, yeah I think we have uh, maybe more important things so you I'm, I'm not even gonna uh, maybe discuss the Republicans because they um, obviously don't care about this issue or if we all die or whatever but in terms of the candidates uh, who do you see what 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 do you who do you think has the best climate change plan uh, in general uh,
1: um I would say that I'm impressed with like the majority of the candidates climate change plans actually uh, um, this has been a shocking presidential cycle campaign cycle so far in that um, I basically have huge climate plans to look over from every major viable candidate, which has never happened before. Um, A lot of that is due to uh, Washington governor Jay Inslee's candidacy. Um, He really provided a blueprint for a lot of these candidates to, Um, sort of take from and incorporate into their climate policies, which is, you know, uh, a lot of candidates are doing that. Elizabeth Warren, in particular, um, is doing that. I think that, you know, Elizabeth Warren has a really strong uh, and detailed climate plan. Um, Bernie Sanders does as well. Um, Even Joe Biden has a pretty highly rated climate change plan. It's just that a lot of people don't really trust him to execute on it Mm -hmm. uh, because of his past relationships with um, with oil interests. Um, but I, and I do think that one, actually Kamala Harris has a pretty strong plan as well. Um, and one great thing about her plan um, is how much it focuses on accountability for polluters, taking polluters to court, um, changing laws to be able to uh, get to be so that communities uh, uh, affected by pollution are directly able to sue polluters for damages. Um, I think that is going to be really important. And then also Cory Booker has one of the strongest climate plans. Um, And he often gets overlooked uh, because, you know, CNN seven hour climate forum, uh, he was the last person to speak. And it was, you know, I was basically falling asleep at that point It was 1120 at night. And it's, Cory Booker hadn't had such a good plan and been so eloquent about it, then I probably would have fallen asleep. Um, so, uh, actually, so
0: yeah. I was just let you know, actually it's, uh, it's still going. Uh, they just got to, uh, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, it's, it's like Jerry's telethon. Remember that? <laughs> like, you know, they're all hopped up on speed by the end. Um, oh, whatever. Um, <sighs> did you, so, Uh, how do they come up with these plans? I mean, do they have their own experts? Uh, who, who's responsible for each candidate's plan? If, if I'm just curious, Uh.
1: um, well, I'm sure that that each, uh, that each campaign has different ways that they come up with their plans. You know, I'm not in the room with them as they're putting them Mm -hmm. together. Um, but you know, most campaigns have a, have teams of policy experts that, that put these things together. Um, a lot of candidates, like uh, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, um, have put out sort of step-by-step smaller parts of their climate plan, like she put out a green manufacturing plan uh, a month or two ago that was just about how to um, transition manufacturing um, over to renewable sources, um, you know. A, a transportation plan, right? Um, so a lot of times they come out in um, in sort of little increments and then they get put together into one big plan. Bernie Sanders, though, did it differently. You know, just a few days ago, he released this $16 trillion green new deal plan that, be- be- that before he had released it, everyone was saying, where the hell is Bernie Sanders' climate plan? <laughs> You know, um, so uh, everyone is everyone is different. But one thing I can say is that um, there is no precedent for a campaign cycle like this, with this many candidates, with this many um, detailed. Specific climate plans uh, that are really in line with the science, uh, what the science says we need to do in order to avoid catastrophe. So. I mean, it, there's a lot to be angry about and be potentially despondent about, but but there's also stuff is happening,
0: yeah. you know.
1: Things are things are happening.
0: No, I agree. No, go ahead. You were saying.
1: Yeah. I was just saying we just have to keep pushing. You know.
0: Yeah. No, th- this is the time. I mean, not just because we have to, but it, you're right. Something is happening. Every every one of those candidates. Uh, is, is putting forth in a, an unbelievable, uh, a, a great plan. Uh, I, I did want to maybe ask you just one or two more questions. On the other side of things, this might be more of a political question, but the uh, GOP clearly, um, you know, they couldn't care less. I'm just curious, do you have any insight into the uh, the mindset of, of why they just don't care about this issue at all? Uh, uh.
1: I mean, I am of the mindset that they don't care because they can't care mm-hmm. and still have a political career. Um, the Koch brothers vast political network made that possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they ensured that that would happen, that it would be impossible to have a political career as a Republican and support any kind of actions that would be, uh, detrimental potentially to the fossil fuel industry. Um, there's a lot of literature on that um, that I encourage your listeners to look into. Um, And I, I honestly think the misinformation campaign uh, run by the part of, um, you know, money interest has been going on for so long that some of it really just does seep into the consciousness of, of a lot of politicians um, Mm. who, who really do believe that, This is just some exaggerated thing on the part of Democrats and that, you know, that fossil fuels are what keeps the economy going, because you know what? Um, For a long time, they they did and they and they do, but they don't have to. Um, And Republicans have chosen. To that, they don't want that to change, that they want to, you know, that they want the economy to stay powered in this way Mm. Um, and you know I I can't look into the minds or hearts of Uh any one of these individual people but um, if I just had to make a guess based on my career and what I've seen it's just just about money and power Mm. and it always has been
0: yeah yeah it sure is Uh, just my final question uh, what can what can people listening to the show do to do their part in, in stopping this? What can the individual do? Uh.
1: Um, so, you know, a lot of attention gets gets thrown into, you know, oh, I should uh, eat less meat, or maybe I should have one to your kid, or maybe I should, um, you know, recycle more or something like that. And that's all fine and good. And I think that consumers have a lot of power to change the behavior of corporations. Um, you know, corporations, uh, obviously, they buy stuff mm. from you, the consumer. So if you demand a certain thing uh, and say you're not going to buy from them, um, and, if, that, and if, if enough of that happens, those corporations can change. And, you know, there's history of that happening. Um, and because we're in a system where corporations uh, so much influence political power... Um, I do believe that the individual consumer has more power than they think however, I also think that you know I, I honestly believe that the biggest thing that you can do is to prioritize climate change in your political life and in your and in your vote um, and to really because that because we have we haven't done that as as a citizenry for the entirety of you know political history in America, um, climate change has always been a really, really low voter priority. And, um, that will change if we demand, if we demand more from our politicians, um, you know, nothing's going to change unless we have a political system that will change it. So, um, you can, if your choice is between not eating a hamburger and, you know, voting for the candidate with the best climate plan, I would say vote for the candidate with the best climate plan. Right.
2: Um,
1: and that's way more, it's, it's the biggest, I think that's the biggest thing you can do is, is just prioritize and be smart and conscious with your with your votes.
0: And the newsletter, Heated, uh, comes out Monday, right? September 9th?
1: It does.
0: Awesome, uh, and then we'll, we'll um, how do people subscribe? How do they, how do they find you?
1: Uh, um, it's super easy. I picked a great u r l yes you did it's, uh it's, it's heated dot world so heated dot com was gonna cost me eight thousand dollars to buy it from some dude, so mm. I just did heated dot world and i think it's um i think it's pretty self explanatory from there There's this little thing where you put your email in and uh and it's free
0: yeah, we had the For same now. thing happen uh at forensic news forensic news dot com was uh gonna be about I think fifteen thousand dollars. So we were like, "Guess it's .net." Sounds good. Yeah, it's
1: .net. Like, okay, I am a journalist. and don't have that much money. I don't have any money.
0: Uh, I have seven dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> Emily, I really want to thank you for talking to us uh, on on this show. And uh, I, you know, uh, just I am looking forward to reading the newsletter. Everybody, you need to sign up. And uh, just you know, have a great weekend. And this show will come out on Monday. Actually, the same day. So, oh, uh,
1: perfect.
0: Yeah. Uh, I want to thank you so much, and I, l- I look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you for listening. Follow Forensic News on Twitter at Forensic News Net. Counterintelligence is at Intel Pod. My personal account is Eric LeVay. Support Forensic News on Patreon. Subscribe to Counterintelligence everywhere you listen to podcasts. This is Eric LeVay, and this is Counterintelligence.